welcome to Exiting Through the 2010s, a podcast about the movies from the 2010s. I am Jack Draper. With me is airplane engineer Cliff Williams. How, how are the studies? You know, you know, my best uh, my best friend from childhood uh, went on to study aeronautics engine, um, engineering. It seems like the cooler type of engineering. Day. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think he works for. Oh, oh, I don't know. I think he had an internship at Tesla. Uh, which doesn't make sense. I don't know. I actually don't know. He had an internship somewhere. He's worked. He's he's worked around. Shout out Spencer. Uh, I don't. Know. I haven't talked to you in a bit. Fun, uh, Betty, uh, buddy. Uh, but yeah, no. I mean. It's real interesting to kind of see that kind of obsession with airplanes. Mm-hmm. I've I've seen that before for absolutely sure. Spencer, if you do happen to listen to this, leave us a review and rate us. Do not forget. I mean, always. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, always. always. Uh, yeah, so today we have Hayao Miyazaki's swan song in quotations. Uh, the wind rises. Attempted swan song. Attempted right. swan song. I think his second, fourth. Yeah, I was going to say multiple swan songs, uh, but now we know that to be false. And to help us unpack it all, it's Cam Campbell. Hi. Hey, welcome back. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um. Uh. Yeah. Before we zero in on the film, let's just go into like first exposures uh with um with the movie seeing it for the first time and it's our only Miyazaki that we can cover I guess just go into like your your experience with Miyazaki and the film Tare
震災の時本当にありがとうございました里美直子と申します I think my first encounter with this film wasn't really exciting um I remember it um being the first anime film on a sight and sound cover that I'd ever seen and I remember picking up the issue for it I never got to see it in cinemas because it didn't play near me Uh, I was at university at the time, and the cinema nearby didn't really play very much. So I only caught it on Blu-ray uh, much later.、Um, I already liked Miyazaki quite a lot. I'd liked him since I was a lot younger because、um, my parents introduced me to Spirited Away on a VHS tape, and I used to watch that quite obsessively before getting into the rest of his films when I was a bit older and actually knew how to access things because I didn't know how to ask for more of that stuff. My parents didn't know what it was, so they couldn't really get me any more of this. So I had to find it for myself. I think The Wind Rises、um, struck a chord with me because I, it was the first of his films that I'd seen working in. I wouldn't say a more mature, I wouldn't say a more mature tone of voice because I think all of his films are quite measured in the same way, but it's the first time where I'd seen him Well, it's one of the first times I'd seen him doing anything biographic, strictly biographical.、Um, and off the top of my head, I'm sure there is an earlier, an exa earlier example, and there's definitely a recent example in Boy and the Heron. But、um, yeah, it's、uh, always, I always found it striking for that reason, rather than the he's reti finally retiring announcement, which lasted all of three or four years because、uh, Boy and the Heron production actually started、uh, in the middle of.、Um, I think it started in 2016. So, really, he was, when in our sort of time frame of him retiring, it's like, oh, he's finally back after 10 years because、uh, that's when the films come out. But he'd been working on Boy and Heron for like seven years. So, really, he retired for about three. <laughs>、um, so, I just,、uh, in hindsight, it's,、uh, it's just quite a funny film to think about.、Uh, so, it's kind of occupies that space in my mind. As,、uh, I wouldn't say as a final film, although it does feel that. For a final film, it feels very despairing, but、um, it becomes even more interesting as when it's of a piece with Boy and the Heron, I think. But that's just my initial thoughts on it. What about you guys? Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away both had the tag of this is my last movie, I think. And, <clears throat> this, and it's like, okay, you say it so many times, you feel like you Wait, said all you said. He said Princess Mononoke was going to be one of his last movies. It was when he, so when he said that, he said he was considering it. I think it was like he's like, I've lost,、uh, movie, making movies has lost its luster kind of thing. He's like, I'm tired of it. This might be the last one. And then I think he said it again.、Um, it might have been Ponyo or before Ponyo with、um, Spirited Away. And、yeah. then he said it again with this one. Like the other two, the other two times he had kind of, it was kind of a half committed, like, 
uh, maybe this is it. I don't know if I have another one in me. And then he did. Right. Whereas this was the actual first one where he said, I'm done, I'm retiring. Um, How long is the production process for one of his films usually? Three years? Four years? Uh, I don't think there's um, a strict... So he's better at keeping a schedule than Takahasa ever was. I think... Mm-hmm. Um, I think this one was something like three or four years. Um, yeah. Sometimes they go into production like... It just takes so much out of him. Like, e- even if it's not crazy. He's old. Like... <laughs> yeah, 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 it's true. It's true. Oh, this one, no. He This one, he uh, began conceiving it in 2008. So literally right after Ponyo came out. Uh, so he must have been working on it for something like four or five years. Um, mm-hmm. Then Boy and the Heron took even longer because he was doing so much of it and he slowed down considerably. Um just because of age. I remember Takahata always ended up delaying stuff. There's a documentary on the making of this called Kingdom of Dreams of Madness, and it's sort yeah. of primarily about the making of The Wind Rises, but um, Tale of the Princess Kaguya, uh, or Kaguya, I can never remember where the emphasis is properly. But um, It's a really good that's sort of happening. It's great. Um, it's yeah. a little bit um, uh, hagiographic, I think. It doesn't really... <laughs> it It touches on some stuff where you're like oh uh, i don't know <laughs> everyone is a little bit fearful of him i wonder it and it doesn't really dig down into that like some other documentaries do um but it does have some interesting stuff with um kagio being developed concurrently in the background and it's just like constant things just being like takat is taking forever again we don't we're we don't have his like <laughs> we don't know what he wants with these storyboards that sort of thing so it was very <clears> funny like uh little bit i think if i'm recalling right there's little bits where it's Miyazaki just being like takata can't keep a schedule but i can't <laughs> absolutely <laughs> and there's some nice symmetry with this and kaguya uh coming out the same year which it's another film we've covered um and those two are sort of parallels in uh comprising everything those two need to say and have have this i mean boy in the hair and like you say it's a nice companion piece to wind rises and like listen i am soon going to be moving on this is one last work that i'm leaving with you as uh as as i'm also reckoning with what the studio that i built has become and all these really interesting things and i think this recent watch led me to really consider like this might be my favorite ghibli film that has been produced like it just says everything and more and it still has this like level of um uh has this level of intensity that you think goes beyond the animation form but still has like these interesting droppings of of uh of like magic in it like the opening when like jiro's eyes are in the dream sequence and they go to like fish fish eyes and stuff like that um it's like really creative because you know you could almost back- call it Miyazaki working in like a magical realist mode. Sorry, didn't yeah. Interrupt no, certainly. That, but... Um, and you know, I, a few years ago, I had never seen any Ghibli, and in 2019, when Blank Check guys are doing their series on Miyazaki, I had watched along with them because that podcast is like my book club, and yeah, and I was just like, oh yeah, this is obviously great, and I'd always just like missed out. I don't know, I had never really had like an in as a kid or anything um but they're perfect to watch as adults and as a kid uh which i mean shows like a sign of a great film for a 
and you know like and I think I'd always like known the iconography of Ghibli like Gen Z loves Ghibli <laughs> like it's just like kind of ingrained with us like we uh we came of age like when those were still popular yeah I don't I don't know I just I think this one really speaks to a lot of what Miyazaki was trying to say for his in, entire career but still have this level of like trying to reckon with what Japan looked like at that time and like what his memories can sort of mess with the idea of what it actually looked like right like as you get older you can sort of have this like hazy quality to it but um yeah this rewatch really just like reminds you how great it is especially after Boy in the Heron as well which is of course marvelous um i sorry I was I was only having a laugh because when you said um it's sort of uh, getting across what Miyazaki wanted to say about his own career. To me, a lot of what comes across in The Wind Rises is the thing he's expressing about his career is that it feels pointless a lot of the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or right. manipulated or corrupted. Right, right. Uh, um, yeah, cursed but, dreams. But it's also uh, cursed and it's about obsessives where he's like, I'm going to pin my life on this one thing whether it be animation or aero engineering, and it, whether that mean being in denial of what it actually creates, <laughs> right? Because he's in denial about the airplanes and he's in denial about, you know, like the tuberculosis and it's, it's all very interesting. Wasn't think, he um, the main opposition towards Ghibli films being available for, for being available for streaming? Um, yeah, like the merchandising. Like good for... Probably, but and... I mean, Suzuki controls all that stuff anyway. <laughs> they probably butt, True, yeah. they butt heads about a lot of stuff. I I guess what I'm like, I don't know. Aren't aren't isn't there going to be like a theme park or like a part of a theme there already park? is like that's there already is like, and I I, I don't know. My girlfriend went to it last year. Oh yeah, how was it? My girlfriend has asked me like, hey, is that actually made yet? And I'm like, oh. They've opened um, some parts of it. Uh, they're opening more in April. There's a Princess Mononoke sort of uh, land that they're opening oh. in April. Um, my partner went to see... Um, I think they have like these little areas where it's like repli like live replicas of um, scenery from the films oh, and like, big fun. models and stuff like that. So it's, just, it's more like a park than a theme park with the roller coasters. Ah, uh, I sense. see. Yeah, you're um, not like, getting on the you're not getting on the Jiro Horikoshi <laughs> haunted house or something. It's uh, it's really funny. It's more uh, like um, yeah, lots of sort of hmm. Let me think. Maybe like a more of a larping. No, not that's not right either. Do you know what I mean? Like a kind of like replica, interactive, like an thing. interactive, yeah, like an interactive yeah. experience. Yeah, yeah, um, more along those lines. Um, I think it's kind like, of. I don't think Star Wars Nintendo Land World. has like a ton of roller coasters or whatever. Besides, like one, it's mostly just like the vibes. Um, yeah, but like I don't even know if Miyazaki's like thrilled about that stuff or like the merchandising and things like that. Like this whole other business and industrial complex upon his art. I I guess what I'm trying to say is I see the connection. I mean, like we've already talked about Oppenheimer, but Oppenheimer's different. Like he knew he was making a weapon of mass destruction, but with, and I guess he, Hero did, or Jiro did too, but 
this idea of your creation, your invention, your innovation, your passion being corrupted into this thing that you have no real control over. Um, I mean, I think that's something artists deal with a lot, uh, whether it be people who like misinterpret your piece of art into something that's like, like with like the Wachowskis and how, um, you know, the MRA red, you know, red pill guys took a hold of, you know, Matrix and made it into this whole other thing. Um, it's obviously not necessarily compare, not exactly comparable to like using well, your airplane, airplane design to create fighter jets, but um, it has that kind of you're you are trying to create this pe this piece of yourself. You're trying to show contribute this passion of yours to the world, and the world kind of takes in is like, all right, we're gonna use it for our own shit. So sorry it sucks but we're going to use it the way we want to use it and um, to build off of the that, film sorry you go first i mean to build off of that idea the ownership of uh ghibli and what miyazaki even needs to have in control of it and relating that to the wachowskis like they didn't own the matrix before resurrections really right like that was that was um uh wb being like we're just gonna make it do you want to direct your thing you know like no matter what it's being made and yeah that's also interesting where it's like uh what the thing that you create do you actually own after after a thing that you have nothing more to add to i do think that um a lot of the winter rises isn't really about harikoshi as a sort of victim of circumstance though i think it does have some measure of study of his complicity in just sort of building things regardless where he's burying his head in the sand for the entirety of the film about the consequences of his actions then he's kind of confronted with it by the airplane graveyard by the end of the film uh and it's funny talking about the wind rises because in a lot of circles it's criticized for not going hard enough on not being hard enough on japanese imperialism and then in Japan, it was sort of in some circles right. it was criticized, right. criticized for being too critical of the war during a very hard time, um, which is quite funny. So it's a sort of damned if you do situation. But um, it makes it more interesting to me in that sense, the sort of idea of complicity in involving yourself in a corrupting influence on your own work. And when you kind of map the film onto Miyazaki's career because a sort of auteurist reading of The Wind Rises and Boy and the Heron has been the sort of the most the plainest way to read it I think um, because when you talk about Japanese animation a lot of what you get is talk about labor practices and the exploitation of um, animation workers and Miyazaki and uh, Takahata as well had reputations as kind of being slave drivers when it came to um Perfectionist. sort of hours and yeah and it was quite not um maybe not as exploitative i can't say for sure because there are people who study animation labor and know this better than me but um definitely very intense to the point that there are people who are just like i don't think if they're younger they kind of like flake out of doing ghibli stuff there's a reason that a lot of the people who work on these films are very old <laughs> it's kind of the old hats right. are used to kind of grinding on these things so i suppose in when you look at the character of Jiro, the way I see him is sort of as a admission of um maybe maybe an admission that um in the pursuit of 
um his sort of idealism in animation and making films that he wants to make that he has you know left behind some damaged things um generally yeah he compares in in kings of dreams of madness he very directly draws a comparison between engineering and animation um so it's quite hard not to look at the film this way where it's sort of reckoning with the result of animated work against um the kind of uh human cost of making it about as directly as you may ever see him say that stuff maybe in boy and the heron as well but that's more about his own issues with his family i was actually reading some stuff from his book well not his book but a book called turning point which is basically a collection of essays which are or and interviews which are either written by miyazaki or orated or just interviews with him and there's one about um there's one well there's one about landscapes and the war and there's a lot of it that um even though it was done in about 2008 so i think a lot of it feeds into his conception of the wind rises but a lot of it is also reflected in the boy and the heron as well because he's talking about his father's uh involvement in airplane manufacturing um and in the essay his sort of viewpoint on airplane manufacturing during the war is that it's straight up evil so he says he remembers having a conversation with his father about like basically confronting him on his role in building planes in the war and he's just like how could you do this this is like an evil thing like i think it's like horrendous like it was he said uh oh uh i was about 18 years old though i hated war i had hopes for japan as a country as a result, resentments I had towards my father, characterized by questions like, quote, why didn't you oppose the war and why did you make things for the military industry built up in me like sludge? As his son, I simply couldn't understand my own father. So it's hard not to look at this film and have him not think, of, and it's hard to look at this film and think of Jiro as a sort of like victim of circumstance. I think he is very much interested in him being kind of compl a complicit part of the war industry. And I think if he's like a reflection of Miyazaki maybe and what he sees in animation, I just, I, yeah, I wonder what that says about him as well. I just find that kind of connection very interesting. I'm a fan of Studio Ghibli's and I've directed the English language version of several of their movies, but never a movie directed by Hayao Miyazaki. His approach to storytelling is is his own, and it, it, the only way I could always think of it is it's like watching someone else's dream. So they're weird, and they're wonderful, and they're incredibly well-observed. I feel like when I watch his movies, you just get that feeling, that feeling you, you remember what it's like to be four years old when the world is a magical place and everything's wondrous, and he sort of invites you in to see that way again. Wind Rises is a story of Jiro Horikoshi, whose dream is to design airplanes. And his opportunity to design airplanes is because of World War II. At the same time, it's a story of falling in love with someone who might not be around much longer. So it's a story of, is it important to be passionate about something that will end badly? It's a fascinating story about somebody who invented what ended up being a very destructive machine. Airplanes are beautiful, cursed dreams, waiting for the sky to swallow them up. Someone is waiting for you. And how he never wanted it to be what it ended up being. 
and how it changed the world and how it changed his life. It is gloriously old-fashioned in the, in the storytelling. He takes his time to unfold the story. It's shamelessly romantic. Das kann das Leben nur einmal geben. You got it. Thank you. I'll be here all week. The whole thing feels achingly beautiful. And I've loved you since the day the wind brought you to me. And they have this beautiful romance. I mean, a really incredible, passionate romance. But if you examine it, it's not so much larger than life. It's just, again, it's sort of a matter of perspective. It's sort of these normal moments of walking through the rain and the umbrella is leaking and we're both soaking wet. You could look at that as sort of a dull and annoying issue to deal with, or if you're Miyazaki, you could make a scene that's just jaw-droppingly beautiful. There's just such a sweetness to the love story and particularly how they meet. I just love that theme that they meet every time the wind is rising and something incredible happens in those moments. Yoko's father watches this love affair bloom between his daughter and this young man. This love you're talking about wouldn't be my daughter, would it? And he knows his daughter has consumption, so he's serving two masters. He wants his daughter to be happy, and yet there are, is a formality that must be maintained. Noko has a fever. We'll have to cancel our dinner plans. Being a Miyazaki film, there are these dream sequences, a real storytelling. But inside Jiro's brain, in, in these dreams he has, he sees the character of Caproni, who is based on a real Italian aircraft designer. He's a very successful aeronautical engineer, and he comes to visit him in these dreams. And he seems to come to him at times of crisis or times of, of need. I guess we all dream of getting to speak with and converse with our idols, but he becomes sort of a mentor because his work has such an impact on Jiro. The thing about the dream sequences that is so fantastic is it's almost like it's Miyazaki's big sort of fingerprints all over the movie. And the really interesting thing is that most dream sequences show what it could be like on the best day. And he's imagining them and seeing their flaws all in the same moment. So he'll imagine a beautiful plane that he thinks he can design and then immediately see the faults in that plane in his imagination will crash. It's really unique to take a movie that, in this case, made in Japanese and make it in English. So our first job is to stay true to what the movie is, to the characters and to the script of the original movie. Doing voiceover work for any animated anything is really, really fun because there's no world like an animated world. Your imagination is full tilt, your characters usually something that you'd never find in reality, which is always fun and something to play around and, and be with. The actors on these kind of projects have a really tough job. They have to match sync and act, and it's really hard. I'm Satomi. It's so very good to meet you, Mr. Horikochi. Uh, sorry? It is very, very technical, but I do like the, the technical aspects of it, you know, getting the line dead on right. I'm sorry to keep you waiting. I'm sorry to keep you waiting. I'm sorry to keep you waiting. There's a little bit of skill in lip sync and putting the words in the mouth so that it works. Did you get it? They got it.
But again, what's really fun is when you get to go to into a big, dark room and watch the movie with everybody. This one was actually really challenging in a way, only because, you know, not only are you syncing to uh, a movie that's already been shot and uh, has been voiced by other uh, Japanese actors, but it was also something where tonally you couldn't hear the tone necessarily because I didn't understand Japanese, but you could get the tone from the characters and from the visuals. So it was really interesting to try to match tone and line readings way more than any other animated thing I've done. Dumbing it from another language is, is I've never done that before. And it's, it's hard, you want it to be as real as possible, but obviously the characters aren't speaking English, but you try to make it as, uh, you know, sync it as closely as possible. So it's a bit of a challenge, but I think it works. You gotta figure out what the truth is and speak to the truth. That's what the director's always looking for. They're looking for you to, yes, fit into this narrow technical thing that you must fulfill, but at the same time, bring yourself to it. Make it great, make it funny, or make it dramatic, or make it true. You got everything you need out there, right? Incredibly gripping performance, right? You're adapting to a character that's already there. So this is kind of like ADR to a <laughs> already there animated character. But what I found actually really thrilling about it and more helpful than usual is that you get a real sense of what the scene is asking of you. And so actually I ended up found, finding it a lot easier in some ways because you get a sense of what film you're in. To be honest, I often say, you know, if you're going to watch a movie that was made in Japanese, you should probably watch it with the Japanese performances. And I think that that's true in, in many cases. But I think what's cool for English speakers, someone like me who doesn't speak Japanese about watching, you know, our version of the movie is then you don't have to read subtitles. But Miyazaki's movies are so visual. There's so much to look at. There's so many little details and every little thing in the frame that that's sort of a shame to be reading subtitles. And I do think that there's a certain rawness to the hand-drawn animation, but I think what that does is it captures something more heartfelt and less clinical, I think, that you see in a lot of CGI'd animation. There's something that seems too perfect almost. When something's a little more raw, it makes you look a little closer at the emotionality of the scene. And I really love that about it. You can see the paint strokes. You can feel the work that's gone into it. We've become so accustomed to the CGI version that I think it's really easy to lose the beauty of the hand-drawn image. And they are different. You can tell right away. And there's something about it that puts you at peace. It's, is it more loving somehow, you know, in the storytelling? It's almost like the colors he's using haven't been achieved through CGI. There's something very visceral and emotional that you see in his work versus other work. But one of the reasons, I think, is that you do see the human work that went into that. So there are tiny flaws. It feels a lot more raw in a way that can connect you. It's actually an aesthetic that I think makes you feel a very specific way that you wouldn't feel in other animation. Certainly there's something nostalgic about it. We're not gonna be seeing this for, for, for much longer. It's gonna be the rare person who's gonna make an attempt like this again. I hope Miyazaki doesn't retire. When you watch this film, you can tell that he told his story his way. If it is his last film, I think it's a good story for him to, to tell because it really is about the creative process and uh, 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 imagination. I dare say it's insight into how Hayao Miyazaki creates. And uh, you could probably see the movie as a window into his thought process. And so that alone is worth it. The main idea you come away from is we must live. 
we must live and we must think for oneself and be emboldened by the dreams that we have and overcome our losses and accomplishments. It feels like that there's some resolution to it. And I think that's why the message speaks strongly to me in the sense that this is his last film. I think sometimes when I go to the movies, I want to laugh. And sometimes when I go, I want to like see something and get me pumped up. But sometimes I just want to see something beautiful. And this movie is about as beautiful a movie as I've ever seen in my life. I think what everyone can find is that sense that you need to have something you're passionate about. And the movie is equally passionate about his work and his love and not giving up one for the other. So what people will take from it is how important it is to find that thing that you can hold on to and make your life revolve around that's more important than anything else. And once you find that, then, then you are living day to day and living you know, fully. It's so funny too, because, and I, I guess my quick first exposure, whatever, I, I, I'm the same with Jack. I was, uh, I was, I've, the reason I, I always wanted to get into Ghibli and I'm always like, but like it was never available for streaming. So I'm like, I don't even know. This was before it, the Max deal. And I'm just like, I don't even know when I'm ever going to watch these things. And blank check started covering them. I'm like, all right, this is the perfect excuse. And then I watched all of them up to Hal's Moving Castle. And I, for some reason, stopped. And then I watched Hal's with my girlfriend uh, a few weeks ago and I saw boy and the heron in theaters. Um, uh, and I have not seen Ponyo is the only one I haven't seen. You should. It's really fun. He was actually going to make a sequel to Ponyo before he made with the wind rises. Yeah. Yeah. I read that, which was so interesting to me. Um, but and it's funny though, because I, you know, I, I never, I didn't see this movie and I knew this was uh, before seeing the wind rises. I, I knew that it was his most like realistic, like it was based in actual reality rather than like fantasy or whatever. Um, and I just, for some reason, assumed from what I heard that it was about his dad because I knew his dad made planes and I just, that's what I just assumed. And I, and I yeah. thought that for the majority of the movie. And then I'm like, Oh no, this is like a real guy. It's a real guy. Um, well, I mean, what unlike I... his father, yeah right 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 right. yeah exactly well i mean i what i've reminded myself of is that not only is this a real person but mixed with that the famous i mean cam maybe you know the story like the the manga that has the story of the wife who has tuberculosis and the wind has risen the wind has risen yes yeah obviously and um and those in combining those two works is very interesting i've never seen an adaptation quite like that I think it's um it's funny that you did assume that it is about his father. I feel like it is in a small way because it's so um, right in the chapter again, like in the thing where he's talking about his father, he also connects it to the great these memories to the great Kanto earthquake, which is something his dad lived through, and that's something that's depicted in the film. Um, but then I guess even when he's dealing with very real details from his own family tree or with a historical figure like he said well, well like you've already said it has those magical touches like and the Kanto earthquake is the first thing i think of when i think of this film because of how it has this very real disaster portrayed in a very strange way not like visually where it's like the ground is rippling sort of like you've flipped up a carpet and how it sounds sound like a monster like inac- consuming something like the like yeah. the noise it sounds yeah it's really interesting it sounds sort of like an acapella 
VFX, like sound effects, which I thought right. was really like a really strange way to go about national disaster because I feel like stuff like that is often, well, maybe in more contemporary anime films like stuff by Shinkai, a lot of sort of big natural disasters are treated with a sort of quiet reverence um, and realistic, very realistic um detail although shinkai kind of loves photorealism anyway but um seeing this kind of done so expressively for for uh miyazaki who while i think his work's very expressive you don't it's not always fully out there it feels like it operates by very rigid physical rules like seeing it it get quite strange with actual history and uh actual biography i thought was really great um in the same sense that it's also, yeah, like playing with um, Horikoshi's biography and adaptation. Mm -hmm. um, it was also, yeah, it, like, I think I kind of noticed, I or I was like, oh, this is probably not based off his dad, is when, like, he started rising up and up and up in, like, the ranks of, like, engineers. I'm like, I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure his dad wasn't that big of a deal. Right. Uh, <laughs> like, I, I don't know, maybe he was, but... I don't think he was like the leader of the air aerospace engineering uh, in Japan. Um, I don't think he invented the Spitfire. No, right, right. And it's funny though because then there was this moments where I'm like, I didn't, I couldn't tell like who was a real and who was a fake character because I just know nothing about like the history of aerospace engineering in like the 20th century and like World War II. So when they had a German engineer named junkers i'm like okay so that's fake no one's named junkers that's not a real name and of course it is a real person um it's interest. it's really interesting watching this film kind of closely for the first time for me closely to seeing godzilla minus one mm. um and not and i think they approach the idea of world war ii and in a lot in a very different ways uh if you want to talk about a film that is not critical of japanese imperialism godzilla minus one is the movie for you um that i i mean it i don't think that's it true is in some ways <laughs> I, I think it's yeah. it's here it's here and there it's not it's not pro it's not exactly um it's definitely a little bit jingoist in its presentation of things but it's got a I'm not saying it's strong skepticism of the government I think I mean one of right. the lines is one of the lines is straight up about uh, the Japanese government treating life cheaply um and while it's not critical of imperialism as in actual yeah. foreign policy in terms of the Japanese government it's making a very clear critique on how it treated its own citizens um, right and I, I yeah for sure and I agree with that I'm not saying that move the Godzilla minus one is just like this nationalistic propaganda I'm just saying if it's if we're going to criticize one movie for not addressing the imperialism of Japan uh I think uh, Godzilla minus one is more guilty of that than um uh when rises but it doesn't matter um it, it you know but what, what what I'm trying to say is all I could think about watching this film because, you know, Godzilla Minus One does something I haven't seen with movies a lot, or, you know, like especially about like Japanese history is just like the kind of philosophy and emotional, like 
every what go what what the kamikaze fighter like what that the philosophy and raw emotions and just kind of just a con like a concept that is kind of hard to wrap your mind around for like someone like me living in this time um but something that was very much a reality and so there's this line at the end of the film and the wind rises that you know you know all these the italian engineer says something of the effect like oh look at all these these planes and he says you know none of them came back and is that it is this like kind of beautiful this like tragic irony of creating something so beautiful it is like Jiro's piece of art this like incredible feat of engineering something that looks gorgeous and stunning and graceful and defies logic in how we perceive just movement in general to have those be dedicated i mean not i don't think it's the same it's not the same plane like that he's focused on or i'm not sure i'm not an expert um but to build those like beautiful creations those like roman statues uh just so they can be used to just like like be destroyed yeah um is it's i mean it's just it's true and so yeah i like, think and by the way i'm not trying to say i'm not one of those people who are like godzilla minus one uh actually it's not good i love that movie <laughs> um but it, but they both and they have those are two very different films in certain aspects for sure but that was just what i was thinking of because i don't know it was interesting seeing those kind of closest together both films very skeptical of japan japan's involvement in world war ii and the psych in the like emotional trauma that comes with it and just how how that just i mean that's like what i don't think a society can be more affected by a thing that's that like what world war ii does to so many countries also but like specifically japan is that changes everything that changes all of everything you can kind of even consider about a society um you're i think you're i think you're definitely right to bring up the connection with um yamazaki's godzilla film because it's it's funny because uh when i was reading a review of godzilla minus one when it came out one of the more critical ones was by a scholar called matt alt um who, who does a lot of writing around japanese cultural history and his was more critical in that uh he he his idea of the fantasy of Godzilla minus one is that it takes place in a Japan where there is no American occupation. So there's no involvement from the occupying military when Godzilla right. strikes when really like it was American territory at the time, as he says in his review. Uh, but he also brings up a thing that's interesting to me in that he had Yamazaki had another World War II film, which came out in the same year as The Wind Rises. Uh, and oh, no it's, shit. A, it's called The Eternal Zero. Um, and in in Matt Alt's review, what he says, uh, he says, The Eternal Zero is a sentimental look back at the story of a kamikaze pilot based on a novel by a notorious war crimes denialist. <laughs> um, it, it proved predictably polarizing, and Matt Alt says here that uh, Hayao Miyazaki denounced the film's plot as a phony myth and a pack of lies. <laughs> That's so interesting. So in the same year that um, The Wind Rises came out, he has uh, this film which is decidedly very um, like... <laughs> romantic supposedly i haven't seen it myself but supposedly romanticizing kamikaze pilots miyazaki <laughs> says it's a load of crap and then later on 
in the same month that Miyazaki releases another World War that II That is film. actually fucking yeah. crazy. Mm-hmm. Yamazaki has a film that is anti-Kamikaze violence. Uh, so I just sort of thought the um, circularity of it was... Um, mm. Interesting is the wrong word, but quite funny. It's uh, very serendipitous. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, I think the thing with The Wind Rises is that it's not really aspiring to be about the war so much as it is about um, the yeah. guy. Um, yeah. I suppose, like... Um, it's one of those instances where the film suffered from people wanting it to have Jiro Horikoshi turn around and being like, I don't believe in right. Japanese foreign right. war crimes. Right. Um, um, it, it, it does. But it is definitely. It, it does read as that because, as much as it is interesting to read into something that the movie isn't about, it's like the movie just lets you like meditate with it and it's not as you know it doesn't have that intensity that oppie has of like these the you know these are the themes these are um sort of the this is the atmosphere that that's being created um yeah yeah it's just about an engineer who happened to have the ability to see the beauty in air flight that doesn't... I think it's um yeah yeah sorry 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 go no 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 no, no go no it, it doesn't uh, mean I was... that he was uh you know complicit in knowing the the sinister uses of of these it just he just happened to you know this is his form of art right and it's and it's it's very you know it's an interesting moral dilemma I don't I don't think it's Miyazaki's uh you know, it's not Miyazaki's position to uh, judge one side of a moral dilemma. It's just he's presenting the moral dilemma, and that's you know that's that's where an an artist can be too trusting of of an audience sometimes. And you know, this is just another prime example of that. Yeah, I think it's it's a it's maybe didn't work in its favor to try and be, um, and maybe maybe not the film isn't distancing itself from World War Two, but it is also acting as allegory for. Um, I don't know, attitudes towards a kind of completely detached art form. He's very interested in Horikoshi as like a draftsman and like an ideas guy. And I mean, he even casts him uh, with Hideaki Anno. So his animation protege and the creator of Neon Genesis Evangelion is playing this <laughs> aeronautical engineer. I did not engineer. know that. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a key part of like that reading of the film where it's like he's drawing this direct line between Horikoshi as an artist and himself as an animator, oh, like as an engineer and himself as an animator. And yeah, he has Anno playing him. It's the first one of the first like major voice roles Anno's like ever had. There's a significant part of the Kingdom of Dreams of Madness which is has this really wonderful moment like captured uh, sort of in real time when they make the decision to cast Anno. So. They're sort of thinking they're like it should be someone who maybe we should go with someone who hasn't done a lot of voice acting to make it seem more natural like sort of connect it closer to the real world we have this sort of very very i can't say the word so you know just they're going they're trying to go for a more like naturalistic kind of dialogue rather than something more pronounced and like performative and Tajiya suzuki just kind of like jokingly just goes what about anno and uh miyazaki's uh sort of sits there and he's just like ha that's funny no let's not do that and then it's like maybe a minute later and he's just like 
but what about Anna? <laughs> and you can start to see the gears turning the whole time. For listeners who obviously cannot see me, my mouth has been opened for the last 10 minutes. I have not I have not been able to I had no idea that the creator me on that's crazy. I might um, post this clip. I might Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's it, it's a that's a brilliant decision though. Um that's a It's arguably decision. the most important part of You're right. <laughs> the film today, yeah, I think. really. Uh, in terms but of like it, unlocking but... the character. Now listen, let, we haven't considered is it is it as important as JGL? You know, the, this airplane is is my loaded die. And... <laughs> oh, I don't yes. like that dub. Actually, no, the dub <laughs> no, is fine. I, the dub is mostly I, I fine. Think... It works. Ar- it works around him. I really. We, like we were talking about this before you joined. Bigger. That I like the dub. I don't like him. I think that's a that's a that's a miscasting. Yeah, that's my kind of. Sta- yeah, that's my yeah. standing on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't. Um, I'm not even a JGL hater. I just. I no, me neither. I just. Flat. I think he's like. T- he's he's too flat and what. John Krasinski and Emily Blunt and like the people around him are doing is much different. And it's just all, it's all wrong with that performance. Um, Although uh, I say this and now I'm like, because I'm no <laughs> Japanese speaker and I'm just like, what if Hideaki Edo is also really. <laughs> what right, if right, right, right. That's what true. If that's that's really true. Performance? Yeah. What if it's a really hard character to do? Yeah. 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 Um, I can't imagine that's, um, that's an easy performance to. to well, I think I, integri- yeah. like integrity and like, calmness or whatever not calm yeah no like integrity and like level-headedness can sometimes come off as flat but mm-hmm. i also just don't think this performance uh is i haven't seen the dub but is not but the yeah the performance i saw was not flat but yeah. like you said um you know, i know but i i mean jiro is such a i mean maybe like up there with one of the great Ghibli protagonists for me um and for jgl to not i for 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 someone to for him to be miscast does feel like a bit of a letdown although it is an interesting performance to see it not gel with the rest of the cast for me um <clears throat> but he i guess that sort of positions some... him as of an outsider mm-hmm. right right that's true and it when... does he does sell some moments like uh the one that you discussed with like at the very end when he sees the airplanes in the sky it's sort of reminiscent of like the Porco Rosso scene of like the white in the sky with all yes. the dead airplanes. I've always thought of this um, as a part of of as a piece with Porco Rosso as well. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> I think in my that... letterbox review I referred to that as the antipasti for this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would make an interesting double bill. Um but yeah, and to to see all the anti-war sentiment and what Japan was going through at the time uh Jiro's moral dilemma and you know his natural ability to to perform the engineering ability uh, duties like all that tied in with the romantic tragedy of it all is really well handled um and well handled in like the earth stops when uh uh you know those two meet each other and like you know when uh when she passes it when um miori when she passes it's like the wind just like gusts over the screen and it's like oh my god it's so devastating um and, and i think it's jiro's sister who's like it does not look good and you're like no it's, like things aren't getting better um but that's that's a part of the you know that's a part of the emotional toll on him is that like he he wants to bring this work of art 
for everyone to to see like like to gaze up into the sky and you look at this this creation but yet um you know his one happiness is, is taken from him when it comes to miyazaki it feels like there's this level of prestige there um that you just don't really see with any other animation director in general um what do you think is i i know this is a real loaded question but i i just want to hear your opinion because since you know I, I i i'm so interested to hear that what do you think it is about miyazaki and maybe it's just to you personally or just to the world that has really been the thing that has just crossed all cultures and contexts and is really made him such a loved presence. I don't think I could um, synthesize it into any one quality. I think one of my favorite descriptions of Miyazaki I can think of, there's a newsletter that I like called Animation Obsessive. Um, and they had a recent one where they talk about um, how Miyazaki focuses on a concrete sense of time and space. Um, so, when you watch Ghibli films, they feel very physical in a way that a lot of animation films don't. Um, sometimes they can feel a bit floaty and intangible, whereas even with what I think of, like Ghibli films have very soft textures to them. Sometimes you look like you could just kind of poke them and <laughs> it'll deform a little bit. But um, they do have this tangibility to them and a sense of weight and realism, which I think that at the very least, I think is what, helps it cross over because it's a very sort of you know primal feeling to it like you can relate to it directly it's not uncanny in the same way that a lot of 3d animation can be um and at the same time it's very um well my when you're talking about it non sort of aesthetically um narratively i just think that they are very humble i think and open and respectful of their audiences and i think that's kind of what captures people a lot of the time because in the case of children they're not talked down to and it's not overstimulate too overstimulating for adults to feel distanced by it they are very intensely interested in the psychology of their characters whether they're young or old um i think for me a lot of the time i'm drawn to them because i like that there are um there are villains sometimes but not in the sense that um there are people who commit evil just because there is always a very thought out psychology behind that um a lot of the time when there is evil in these films it's something that exists on a more existential level um like there's a sort of loom there's a sort of very intense looming threat like kind of you'll have porco rosso fleeing from fascism and that's right. sort of this big looming thing uh, there's never any any kind of mustache twirling in these films, apart from in potentially their early in their earliest one, Castle in the Sky, Cagliostro. where you have yeah yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, and Cagliostro, yeah. I don't really count. I don't quite count that as a Ghibli film. Um, mm -hmm. If we're talking about them before, but yeah, in terms of existence, right? Right. Yes. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Castle in the Sky is their mm -hmm. first one officially under that banner. Nausicaa is kind of like the honorary one because it's when the producer and him were working together properly um lupin and lupin was kind of its own thing before right absolutely that it's it has it comes with its own tone of voice i love lupin by the way the, like not just castle of Cagliostro, the show is the show is incredible but um yeah i don't know 
Um, it feels a bit of a cop out to say that a sense of universality is <laughs> no, why no. these things translate so well, but I think that just kind of is it. Um, again, in the same, um, it's it's been this thing has been on my mind because it came out during the release of Boy and the Heron, and um, it sort of just floated into my inbox, and it just like it kind of unlocked a lot of things for me. But uh, the same animation obsessive, uh, like uh, newsletter thing was talking about how um their kind of desire was to make fi make films not make anime if that um not right. in a belit like in Miyazaki he's definitely saying it in a sort of belittling sense towards the rest of the right. anime industry but when I say right. it, I feel like it's um more in the sense that it's not necessarily following a lot of things that are kind of codified as quote-unquote anime like um there's a lot of things that you would associate with like television anime and anime films like a sort of soap operatic drama and a certain style of drawing um mm -hmm. that ghibli doesn't quite not necessarily it, yeah like a like when you say that there's sort of a certain style associated with the word um but in the case of ghibli i think it's like more that you say that and they have their own visual identity that's conjured up by that they have a very individualist house style i guess yeah, um, you know, uh, the, based around Miyazaki. the Miyazaki reading that always stuck with me was that his movies are about two things, airplanes and nature and how those things are connected and how they're separate. Um, you know, the the beauty in nature as we're kids, the beauty in airplanes as we're older, I'm sure. Uh, and, and this comes from Miyazaki himself and maybe a generational thing. And uh it it yeah I, I think those those two more magical and pragmatic views of the world are are uh, you know it's timeless it's timeless in the <clears throat> and even something like Totoro in Ponyo they are able to show it's like little kids and it's like it does not hold your hand in in the lessons that it's trying to teach you it's just like you know this is you know these are illnesses these are uh, um this is this is how you're able to see the world beyond yourself. And it's, you know, these things are really uh, timeless. Um, I, I, by the way, I came out, I loved that answer, by the way, I, I got, that was exactly what I wanted to hear. That was awesome. <laughs> I mean, a lot of it was uh, borrowed. You can thank animation. He passed obsessors. the ball to you and you shot a three. <laughs> no, but I, I think I, I, I also just really, I just loved how you articulated all of that. Um, I, I completely agree with that idea of that commonality and that universality, but also the tech, you know, the aesthetic thing is also like really, a really, really good point. The idea of it feels tangible. It feels textured. It feels like there is this almost not like logic, but this like consistency in the sense of. No, I'd say logic. Yeah. yeah. That's, I think that's definitely the right term. Because I mean, not logic as in in connecting to realism, but that there is this. It's just it, you never feel. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You feel like you're never like there's not this. It, you that they forgot how the world worked for a second, or their world, I mean. But like they all, it's all consistent amongst each other that the world makes sense, even if it's you know, even though it's like not reality. It has this concrete foundation that you can kind of connect to and be drawn to. 
Um, yeah, I, 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 I think Miyazaki in general is just has this emotional intelligence to his films in general. That is also what draws me is that, you know, people love to talk about how, and I, I, I think Pixar is great. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, not necessarily lately, but just in, like, but a lot of their films are great and have a lot of, it has a big connection to my childhood and stuff, but people love to shine their praise for, oh, how like quote unquote mature they are and stuff. And sure, that might be true. But I think with Miyazaki, it's this, it's that no matter how old you are, it connects in just different ways. And it's just like, yeah, like maybe as a nine-year-old, I'm not going to be like, yo, the wind rises rules or whatever, but who <laughs> But like, Which, I wonder if you would show this to a nine-year-old. I was thinking that. No, but I feel like spirit, like spirited no, they, away, they'd get bored. Yeah, and her throwing up blood might be like a weird thing. Um, yeah. But like, I think why are there like so many offices? Away, I think you know people always like to say, "Oh, that's animation. This animated movie is so great because it works for kids and adults." Like that's a mm -hmm. thing that people say about like when they try right. to compliment something, and. I, I think, think it's fine for animation is... to just be for kids. Exactly. Yeah. That yeah. exactly. But Spirited Away to me is I think has such an emotional a core emotional truth to it that it literally connects to everybody. And I think that's the and that's present in a lot of his films. And like mm -hmm. maybe I'm not I don't I don't feel the same like like about Porco Rosso. I think that movie is just an incredibly fun romp. And has like you know these really engaging characters and stuff, but I do also think there's that there's just this in Puerto there is fisticuffs so. and there is anti-fascist pigs. Um, so he just has everything that I could kind of want from someone who makes art, but specifically animated films. Yes, um, I, but I, I would say like Miyazaki is. I mean, I mentioned earlier like Gen Z loves Miyazaki, and that's that's i know that's very restrictive i mean everyone loves music ghibli movies but i noticed like it is a very generational filmmaker and it's 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 a director with non-movie friends that i notice you just kind of like know the name you know i mean obviously ghibli and mizaki are like intertwined but uh it is it is i mean he's like a house that he's a household name a household name yeah yeah and um i've never really got like ghibli is the japanese pixar like that seemed very restrictive to me um because they i think are you could measure it purely things. only in terms of popularity um certainly certainly and, because, because when like, i say he's a household name pixar here, doesn't like, have the tangibility that Miyazaki movies do i think they, they just fall short of it because so many of their films feel like graphics tests to me sometimes i like turning red i really liked because it had like a sense of actual production design and not like they were trying to get the most realistic possible lighting on this yeah. like um on this new york neighborhood i hate soul so much <laughs> i know that felt like um, a weird fever dream i know um um like and speaking of this I, decade i mean like for me really the shining stars are inside out and incredibles too but like yeah they haven't really been on top of their consistency they have a graphics card test quality to them which i think yes. puts me off um yes. right 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 yeah i think honestly Ghibli films as well. I think there's a sort of interest in uh, like kinesthesiology, which I really like. Like it just it's very fascinated with how people can move. Um, 
I, it's something I liked in Boy and the Heron was an early, a cut early on in the film where it's basically just him folding up his clothes <laughs> um, or like when he's setting up in his new room, like it has an interest in just observing people for a little bit. Um, it's a quality that I think is talked about quite a lot in their films where it's like it's content to not to have moments that are not purely about moving plot forward, which I think can be the case in a lot of animated films because they sort of just kind of like they've got to keep people's attention we've got to keep things moving um i think pixar maybe gets that um connection to them because it is also quite it's strongly interested in animating just like a feeling and not and being willing to stay still for a bit um but obviously there's just kind of they've got very different visual priorities um and even then it's like they, their style of comedy is like it's very like gag like focused where the Ghibli films are like very, but a little bit more about. Uh, they don't quip; they have like little visual jokes. Um, right. Yeah. A yeah. lot of the yeah. time. I mean, it's not. It's not either or. Like they have plenty of quips too. Like I mean, they have a funny frying pan in one of them. He's not the uh, anti-mascot character, I guess. Yes. Yes. The humor comes. There's from, always one. Like character humor, not so much like situation humor. Uh, but maybe that's well, not. Like appropriate for the wind rises <laughs> right right yeah you don't see a lot of slapstick in, in this one um besides the hair physics the hair fit i i want to just shout out the hair physics in this when the dude's boss it's just it just moves like that's the thing what you were talking about like with is it like the thing where his hair like kind of like whenever they get bad like they kept their hair sort of yes. lifts up a little bit yeah so but like yeah and when he's <laughs> and when he's walking it just bounces up and down up and down yeah. up and down uh I, I think when you're when you were talking about like that focus of hyper realism in certain animation like Pixar and stuff, I think that's that to me is like, well, then you just lose like the whole point of this fucking thing. If you wanted actual realism, go shoot a fuck like go make a fucking live action movie. But the whole like to me, it's just like you use animation to push the boundaries of what you can do with the mm -hmm. camera. You do it so you can move past those limitations to me. Like that's how I view animation. And Certainly. so when you do like, let's make sure the hair looks perfect in this lighting and whatever. I'm just like, the, you lost, you lost the plot. Um, but Jack, you were gonna, you were gonna it, say. I was gonna add on like, uh, and if you want to have a more perfect, uh, synthesis of staying within and going far beyond those limitations of animation, this is perfect. I mean, this is perfect of of telling a grounded human complex story uh with magical realist elements i mean like you, you can't it's, ah, it's yeah it's it's just it's great um i think what you were saying about the sort of um potential of animation as something to be expressive and more expressive than live action i think that kind of that hits home particularly hard with this film because i think um with animation, when you're looking at fantasy, when you're looking at reality, they exist in the same space. They may not have like the same, like the dreams don't have the same sort of physical rules as um, the real world does, even in the space of the film, they they have their own sort of thing. You know, it's, it's a dream. You can tell it's a dream. It feels like a dream. But when you're just kind of looking at it, it looks just as tangible as reality does. And I think that's something that you can't really get um, in the same way in live action films you know what i mean like absolutely um, absolutely you yeah. can't um you can have a dream sequence in a film 
in a live action film and obviously it'll be you'll have like lynchian stuff and that sort of dream logic but i think like you couldn't have you can't have like a full-on fantasy uh with yeah. strange like uncanny flying planes and this sort of thing that have that tangibility in the same kind of way i don't i can't play put my finger on it i can't talk about it precisely but i hope i am getting something no i mean i know that. exactly what yeah. you mean oh, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, yeah funnily enough yeah it feels like i'm grasping at something that's not there so it's kind of appropriate for dream talk um <laughs> yeah but it's certainly. it's fascinating to get that from a biopic um yeah right that it that it's right. so yeah. interested in um unreality and again that kind of brings me back to the canto earthquake in that it's just it does even though it's this very real uh and so well seismic historical mm -hmm. event it just it doesn't feel like it's possibly happening when you're looking at it it's you're just like looking it's like why is the ground rippling like water that's so strange right exactly i don't think the ground does body rolls or whatever i don't think it's doing the worm i don't think that's actually how that works but like it but that but that's that's what it sees in the movie like that mm -hmm. like you said yeah i mean it's it's it, it gets to an almost a point of it almost feels more real than reality is like when an earth like with earthquakes you kind of think of them as these horribly destructive and moving things that it almost makes more sense for it to do like these like like huge like waves on the ground than it does just then if it makes almost more sense to your head than like like a tectonic plate shifting and things like that where you're just like I don't even really understand how that you can understand when the ground moves up and then down and up and then down. Mm. Yeah. And it, yeah, like the, the, the communication of that is so uh, compelling. And again, in a biopic, which could have been very dry <laughs> uh, in its uh, communication about how this man experienced this history. But um, yes. But it, but it does not do that. So yeah. here we are. Now, as we know, awards are not everything. But I thought it would be a fun game to like have you guys guess. But if we want to review or guess the films that The Wind Rises lost to, or or, or that it, it was uh, beaten by, uh, you know, I think I know the this. 2014 Best Animated Feature uh, Academy Awards. Yeah, please. If you if you guys have guesses or if you know for sure, like what's in the the other, I can't remember. I can't remember what one, but I know that Big Hero Six was in that year. Was not. I think Big Hero Six won. It was. It was. It was the pre. That was the Princess Kaguya. Yeah, it was the previous year. Yes. Yeah, you're thinking of that was the that was what Princess Kaguya lost to. Yes. Frozen. You're right. Frozen one. Yes. Yes, I do it. A much much better film, of course. You know. Oof. That's 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 the pinnacle <laughs> of animation. Uh... I do quite like the song. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, sorry, I feel like I, I I ended the game pretty quickly. I feel like <laughs> no, I mean, no, I, I, I I was it it was gonna end pretty quickly if I could name <laughs> more than two. If you guys have any guesses, um, I mean, you're already... I can or I can I can tell you. That's the... oh, you mean no, the I other wanna, nominations? I hear them. Okay, you want to yeah. hear them? Um, I just remember we what have, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we have Ernest and Celine, or Celestine. Ernest and Celestine. Celestine. Yes. Celestine. I think. <laughs> I read that quickly. Is that good? Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Nice. Uh, the Crudes and Despicable Me Two. Mm. They're back. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all mm. all far superior to the Uh, favorite scene. 
favorite scene from The Wind Rises? Anybody would like to uh Cam I mean disperse mm. if you had any. Uh in in the dub, my mm-hmm. favorite scene is Werner Herzog singing the song. <laughs> at sure the bar. Um yeah, at the bar. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um in sub uh boring answer, but I like the big finale where they're walking through the plane graveyard. The plane graveyard. Yeah, well. that's oof. yeah. Um Yeah, I shouldn't talk I about the dub and stuff. Oh, like they're separate, but yeah. I think it's just like the yeah, novelty yeah, yeah. No, of having Werner Herzog singing is just like you can't yeah. pass it up. Das gibt's nur einmal. Das kommt nicht wieder, das ist vielleicht eine Träumerei. Das kann das Leben nur einmal geben, vielleicht ist morgen schon vorbei. Das kann das Leben nur einmal geben, denn jeder Frühling hat nur einen Mai. Bravo. I also watched the sub and dub for the for for this episode and I should be able to have an answer for both but I really enjoy No 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 I know I know. Um I really enjoy the uh the the opening sequence when he's a kid and he and he meets the the old master and um mm. he's like I I don't know the ability of flight but you know and and he teaches him like uh you don't need the ability of flight to to know how to design airplanes i i you know i imagine these beautiful things and then like i really like that performance from the kid and it's really like animated with this like levity yeah i, I think it's you know did children just wear navy caps was that their thing their little captain hats was that is that a thing that happened it was, just very it was like funny a national uniform oh really okay i think it was like a just... national uniform kind of thing they do do that it's or it's something that appears in a lot of films anyway you gotta um, bring that back like a traditional thing they um, gotta put these kids back in these, you know, little army hats. I think um, it was just like they wore school uniform all the time. I um don't actually know this person. But that looks good though. Most school uniforms look shit. That looks good. The little hat, I more. I I'm I'm gonna start wearing it. Mr. Caproni, may I ask you a question? I know I can't be a pilot because of my eyesight. If I'm not a pilot. Can I still design airplanes? Japanese boy. I've been around planes all of my life. Do you know how many I've flown? None! Another one! <laughs> many can fly airplanes, but I design them. I create airplanes, and so can you. An aeronautical engineer! Yes! But remember this, Japanese boy. Airplanes are not tools for war. They're not for making money. Airplanes are beautiful dreams. Engineers turn dreams into reality. Yes. Arrivederci. We'll meet again. 
Um, I think my favorite scene is um is when he's working on working at home with um oh I forgot her name too. Um with his wife? Yes, his wife. Oh, when he's like holding her hand and while he's working. I really like that as well. Yeah. Can I hold yeah. your hand? Are you do you promise uh, you know are, do you promise you're not gonna let go? I promise. I mean as some not to make this all about me, but like as someone who's in a serious relationship right now, it's just like that's just those moments are just like fuck shit. All right, <laughs> I'm gonna start crying. You, you can't me. stop me. I'm gonna just fucking god damn it, Hio, you motherfucker. Um no, that's just such a pure beautiful moment. And those little emotional truths that I feel like you just don't get from I mean, I, I just can't think of an animated movie last time I've seen something just like that, especially from the West, where it's just like mm. that little moment of just pure and that human connection. It, it's it, funny it, that it makes my heart sing. Yeah, it's beautiful. But I also think it's quite funny that in the dub, like the um, I had to I just looked it up uh, to double check. But yeah, like that it's Emily Blunt playing Naoko and uh, mm -hmm. JGL playing Horikoshi when John Krasinski is also in the cast as like yeah. Horikoshi's yeah. best yeah, friend. It's funny. It's just yeah, like a little. Really um, yeah, I was looking at it, the. Um, and we also Japanese mentioned that one is the wife like... in Oppenheimer as well. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a, another connection I did movies. kind of forgot yeah. about. Yeah. But it's interesting that it's just like she's just like a uh, in the dub. She not in the dub in the uh, Japanese language version. It's still just like a TV actress as well. Like they kind mm, of yeah went quite in on not going for voice actor voice actors. Mm -hmm. like Hidetoshi Nishijima is the best friend in that as well Mr. Drive mm -hmm. from my car himself <laughs> yeah yeah um, how funny is that Mr. Drive my car yeah. <laughs> um, so it's funny like kind of looking at it and they, they kind of do have fairly um, they have fairly kind of equal voice casts in the terms of like what kind of actors they're going for only right. it's like if um I don't know if they, if they got like uh I'm trying to think of like a good like old timey director and his protege like what the kind of English language equivalent would be um I can't think of an American director who took someone under their wing oh, film, like there's Hundreds probably, but in the moment, I'm just yeah, like, right. Yeah, yeah, no, so you know what I mean? No, absolutely. Yeah, right. Yeah. We're going to get think of someone. It's just funny. Leave this. Yeah. like <laughs> It's just funny thinking like uh, that there's like a, it's just a veteran director like plugged into this cast um, of TV and film actors. Um, mm -hmm. What if Mar Martin Scorsese directed Ari Aster in something? Obviously, that's not like, they're not act like, I don't think they're actual proteges, <laughs> but like he's a big co-signer <laughs> or whatever, but. Just that kind of that yeah yeah idea. something like something like that I guess yeah mm -hmm. or it's like, a, it's like know, I couldn't um, think of anything. There's one Paul Thomas like if um Robert Altman was to pass away during Prairie Home Companion, Paul Thomas Anderson was gonna oh, take over directing something like that. I was gonna say Spielberg and Lynch, but I guess they're more contemporaries than they are proteges. So that yeah, they're contemporary. Yeah, they're yeah. I was thinking. I was actually thinking the same thing. But it's just yeah, I couldn't really. You swear just think it. for um, some reason I just think Lynch is like twenty years older. Or not? No, or like <laughs> he's an old I guess, soul. No, yeah, I do believe that. I do believe that. Just because for some reason he's this this I don't know. He's just a very much like an old man. 
Um, if you wanted to know more about Anno's connection to uh, Miyazaki, uh, it's funny because Anno is his part in an old in Nausicaa is in Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, or Naushika. I think I can't remember which way is the connected pronunciation. I think it's the second one, but I always say it the wrong way first. Um, <laughs> in Naushika of the Valley of the Wind, um, Anno is kind of famously animated a sequence where the God Warrior, uh, this kind of giant hulking ancient monstrosity crawls out of the earth and it blows something up which is a very anno sounds like <laughs> yeah i was gonna say it sounded, out of all out of the evangelion i've seen that yeah that that that, that makes sense that yeah. clicks so yeah i just it's just been on my brain as well because a clip of it uh has been shared and by like accounts i follow on twitter mm -hmm. and it's just an amazing sequence so yeah. anyone listening to this who hasn't watched nausicaa <clears throat> now she could god damn it uh <laughs> But I, I mean, yeah, Go check out all the, uh, you know, revisit the Ghibli movies as per usual. Check, revisit this one. They're streaming now. You have no excuse. If they're streaming, right if, right, I, right. if they were streaming when I was, I had to buy all of those motherfuckers on Blu-ray when I wanted to get into them. All of them. That wasn't cheap. So you oh, have I no excuse now. They're yeah. fucking streaming. You I watched, watch watched Spirited Away on VHS. ニーニーはいつもこんなに遅いのですかはい。かなりに一人ぼっちで寝かせておいて。ニーニーが思ってるより直子さんの病気はずっと重いのよ。私これでも医者の卵だから少しはわかるわ。直子さん、ニーニーを安心させたくて毎朝お化粧して方便に刺した
もっと近くに来てうんうんください。お仕事をしている時の次郎さんの顔を見てるの好きなの。片手で計算尺を扱うコンクールがあったら、僕はきっと一位になるね。うまくいきそうだよ。五問目くらい軽くなりそうだ。そう、よかった。三十本で百五十問目だ。多すぎますわ。二人分だったら、その半分でいいわ。骨だからね。サバだったら僕はそのくらい食べられるよ。こうしててあげるからもうお休み。話さない？うん、話さないよ。タバコ吸いたい。ちょっと話しちゃダメ？ダメ。ここですって。ダメだよ。いい。Cam, thank you so much for returning to us. This was a delight to have you back.、Um, if you if you have anything you're working on that will come out, this is this episode is coming out this week.、Uh, if you have anything that's going to be this week, you know, out、mm. uh, soon, feel free to、uh, share. I'm、it. having a bit of a strange January, so I don't have anything to plug.、Um, yeah, I guess you can. You're also just busy a lot. It seems like so. I can't even. I I would never be able to remember what's coming out. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a bit of a quiet month for me actually. Um,、mm. January sucks. I it is it's pretty terrible. Um, uh, uh no, nothing to plug. <laughs> <laughs> Any words of wisdom? Hmm. No, jackass forever. <laughs> jackass forever. Yeah, jackass my, forever. Those、yes. are my words of wisdom. Yeah, emblazoned stream, on my chest. Stream jackass forever. That's the. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll he'll get、you. he'll get the residuals. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh,、oh, I also just want to say, Cam,、uh, the Spider Verse episode is one of the the best episodes、oh. we've ever done. It's the、Whoa. episode I've told people to listen to when they've first listened. I I I、oh. I, I, oh. Oh. I I love you as a guest. I love hearing you、huh? speak. Yeah,、uh, I'm yeah. so happy you were able to come back on. Um. So yeah, I just really appreciate your time, man. This it's always a pleasure. Oh, you flatter you flatter me. Thanks for having me on.、Uh, I'll come、yeah, back now、words. that you said all these nice words about me. Yeah. <laughs> ah, it works. Yeah, and now I'll receive several messages saying, "Why aren't I Clay's favorite episode?" That's that's gonna be weird. Um, <laughs> I can be found on Twitter, Jack H Draper. I'm on the Boston Hassle, writing about movies. I'm on Letterboxd, Jack Draper Seven.、Uh, this movie is available to stream on Max in the U.S.、Uh, and Netflix in the U.K.、E、Netflix in the U.K. Of course.、Um, our next episode will be Ma with Hannah Pfeiffer. Is it a Mazing? We'll see. Very exciting. I'm、oh, sorry. I have to recover from that. Ma a Mazing. All right. Uh, everyone, follow me at Birds of Clay on Twitter, Letterbox, and Instagram. You can follow the podcast Twitter account ATT Pod. You can send us an email at exiting through the 2010s at gmail dot com. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe.、Uh, be good to yourselves. Keep supporting the ceasefire movement happening for Gaza right now.、Um, stay safe. Hope hope you all are being good to yourselves in this. Time,、uh, and we will catch you next time on exiting through the 2010s. Bravo.
don't know why I ended it like that. Yeah. I hope you're having a <laughs> being.